Where in the world could you find out that your deceased grandfather voted in a constitutional referendum three years after he died? Where in the world do you have Ba'athists, Nasserists, Islamists, and pure opportunists competing for power against military rule? Little Mauritania is the country we dive into in today's episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual. It's an Arab country with an African twist, and it's the perfect test tube and lab for the rest of the Arab world, which its political culture resembles greatly, whilst holding local particularities, of course. This might sound strange to Middle Easterners, but the fact is Mauritania is and has been the leading frontier in the struggle for democracy in the Arab world. In 2005, it embarked on a pioneering democratic experiment, culminating in the election of a civilian president, only for him to be toppled through a military coup one year later. It was a preview of the Sisi coup in Egypt in 2013. Mauritania is also interesting as a test lab because it is quite marginal in the greater geopolitical power struggles that are plaguing the Levant. There's little American involvement, little Gulf state interference, or Turkish or Iranian presence. It has a tribal multi-ethnic society and a youthful population in a state of silent conflict, all dominated by military rule disguised as civilian. The only constant is the absolute supremacy of the military. You may be tempted to dismiss Mauritania's relevance. Do it at your own risk of missing out on a peculiar crystal ball that can provide some useful answers for the future of democracy in the Arab world. So I'm joined today by Nasser Widadi, a longtime friend and contributor, and given the topic of today's episode, I think it's apt that we uh, start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself. You're Mauritanian originally, right? Yes, I was, I'm Mauritanian by birth, uh, and I was raised between Mauritania, the Middle East, uh, West and East Africa. And how did you come to be based in the US? Long story short, I was one of the first people who used the internet for political ends in Mauritania. And I was part of uh, the so-called radical opposition. And I was involved in a series of high-level leaks and very embarrassing information that was uh, released on the internet about the regime. And my case got aggravated, basically, by being involved in, uh, in one of the, the, the highest, most intense uh, diplomatic crises uh, a previous Mauritanian regime got in with France. And for all of the above reasons, I was uh, basically on the top list of public enemies. So ultimately, that led me to a path where I had to seek asylum in the United States. And uh, before that, I was also um, involved in um, in the anti-slavery movement, uh, SOS Esclave. And um, put all these elements together, I became... Before turning uh, 20, I was very active in the opposition, and that gave me a life experience that, uh, of politics and involvement in uh, both grassroots politics and high level. That became later extremely useful, looking at the rest of the Arab world and exchanging ex expertise and experience with uh, counterparts in other countries. By the time I turned 30, I had been already involved in a, two coup d'etats, a transition, a democratic transition, and later on, by turning 35, uh, like the third coup d'etat happened, and 
somehow I ended up basically becoming sort of the spearhead in Washington, D.C., negotiating the outcome of all of that and uh, trying to influence and pressure decision makers in the United States about Mauritanian affairs, which is a, a side of what I do, which is much less known um, on the Internet or via Twitter, because I've always kept my Mauritanian uh, work uh, very low profile. That's a hell of a CV. Mauritania is probably a country that most people will not even have heard of in passing. The more sort of discerning will be aware that it's one of the few countries in the world that still has slavery. But that's about it. So tell us a little bit about Mauritania. You know what, Ahmed? I myself didn't know where Mauritania was until I was born in it. <laughs> so, yes, that's, uh, that's true. Mauritania is uh, this like fault-line uh, fault country that not many people know about. And what most what people think they know about is either wrong or outdated or flat-out false. And the, the interesting thing about it is that within it's this fault-line connection bridge between the Arab world and, and black Africa. And that is quite obvious in, in its composition. Uh, you have the Arabic-speaking Moors, which is, again, legacy of the French colonization, how these names stuck. And those are the terms that are used. You'll find them in, in research. Even in reality, when we're talking about Moors, we're talking about a, a composite of Arabs and Berbers who got mixed up and who speak Hassaniya, which is a Maghrebi dialect of the Arabic language. And then you have the Afro-Mauritanians, who are Soninke, Wolof, Pular, and Pearl. These are ethnic uh, groups. Some of them are, like, for example, the Pearl or the Fulen. That's the other name they're known for, are a mega group in all of West Africa. And their presence stretches all the way to Nigeria and Chad. But, like, just to drop in here, a little historical reference. The Ghana Empire, not to be confused with uh, the modern-day Ghana, was actually on Mauritanian territory. And um, during the conquest of the Almoravids, again, the Almoravids did not come to Morocco, contrary to the myth. They came from Mauritania. And during the conquest of uh, then Muslim Spain, or reconquest of Muslim Spain, um, as you see, <laughs> the history um, the history of the country is misunderstood both in Africa and both of the, in the Arab world because basically this is what happens. In Africa, Mauritanians are too Arab and in the Arab world, they're too African. And the, the one thing that then I've had many conversations with Sudanese friends and I've made the point to them that in reality, it is Mauritania, not Sudan, that is like the, the true bridge between the Arab world and Africa. Mauritania is a 100% Muslim nation. Hence uh, its official name, the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. That is the reason that, like, sort of Mauritania's African extension is lo a lot less conflictive and problematic than the one that Sudan has. Because let's remember, Sudan's before it's uh, the independence of southern Sudan. The north is Arabic speaking, and the south is not Arabic speaking. And more importantly, the real fault uh, divide line was. Uh, beyond the ethnicity, it was that the North is Muslim and the South was Christian. No such thing in Mauritania. And that's why, that's why it's like the ties between Mauritania and Mali and Senegal and beyond. Because many, many of the prevalent Sufi orders, um, be it Tijaniya, be it Qadiriya, be it Hamawiya, that extend, the influence extends all the way to Nigeria, all tie back to Mauritania. So... It's a very interesting and complex country, 
and um, the situation in it is for further complicated that within the the Hassanophone or the Arabic-speaking group, the Arabs of the country, there's the other category, which is the Haratin. These are the descendants of slaves. And uh, one of the, the, the enduring problems and, uh, and residues of military rule is, is that the country's exact ethnic makeup is the one and the only best-kept secret in the country. They would not release the results because they're that will create like that that will require some shifting it's it's in that respect it's a little bit like lebanon the haratin are very important because they're the descendants of slaves and as again you mentioned in your introduction the only thing most people in the world know about mauritania is that if they successfully locate it in the western coast of africa and not as the island of mauritius what they would say is that oh slavery um well slavery i have some news to break to people here Chattel slavery does no longer exist in Mauritania. Um, that has effectively, like, sort of was ended, not even by state decree, even though that there was series, um, there was the 1981 decree, which was more lip service than anything. What is, what is still a real problem is that the Haratin, whose exact numbers, we don't know, but we suspect that there are anywhere north of 35% of the population, if not more. And, and regardless of whether they're 35, 45, or 50, the fact is, is that they will be a majority at some point. The fact is they are at the social, the bottom of the social ladder. Almost like a caste system. Yes. It's ba- Mauritania, like to give you an American benchmark or comparison point, Mauritania is in its reconstruction. It's like a, the reconstruction in the United States. People were emancipated, but they're, they're still extremely poor. There are no texts or laws that discriminate against them. But the, the, the discrimination is quite clear. Um, if you look at the government, if you look at the makeup of the armed forces uh, officer corps, if you look at, most importantly, if you look at the economy, um, where the wealth is concentrated, the Haratin are completely getting the short end of the stick, if I may say. So just before we dive into the main topic, which is the recent election, um, let's extend this history lesson by uh, 30 seconds and give me a briefly compressed, you know, so compressed it would make a historian shudder, um, walkthrough of colonialism and the chain of governments that came after it to the present day. Okay, Mauritania gained its independence in 1960, November 28th, happens to be my birthday as well, from France. And 18 years civilian government, which was really the founding fathers of the country. And then a coup d'etat in 1978 by a military that was disenchanted and demoralized by the Sahara world, war against the Polisario. And then ever since, a series of coup d'etats. And then by 1992, uh, there was this shift to multi-party elections, which were never really that. We'll, we'll develop that point later in the talk. And then a 2000, 2005 coup d'etat that ended the rule of Ma'awiyul Sidah Milutaya, who was ruling the country from 1984 till 2005. And then a democratic transition that saw the first democratically elected civilian uh, in power. And these were truly transparent and pioneering elections. But then that ended less than a, a year and a half later with a coup d'etat because the said civilian was in reality picked by the military and by General Aziz in particular, to be basic sort of a facade. But that, that arrangement went sour when the civilian elected president thought or 
got ideas of his own that didn't please the military. And they toppled him. And then the country went through a turmoil because of the coup d'etat until 2009 and with the intervention of foreign powers, particularly France, Morocco, Senegal, uh, Gaddafi's Lib Libya, who all coalesced to legitimize the coup d'etat and leave Aziz, who was the current guy in power, and he's been in power since 2009. Uh, so how long has he been the head guy in the military? He, he, like, actually, he, he was never quite the head of the military during his career. He was head of the presidential guard. Right. Or the equivalent, the equivalent of the Republican guard in Egypt, for example, Haris al-Jumhuri. So when would you say his influence actually started? How long has he been the main player? He became the main player since the coup d'etat in 2005. Right. And then 2009 is when he formalized it. He, yeah, he toppled his own, the guy he, he, he handpicked and then replaced him huh. because um, he came to the conclusion that it was no longer possible to trust the civilians. And there's an, almost an unwritten rule, but it's nonetheless the cardinal rule of pol political life in Mauritania, which is that the military supremacy, the military is uh, the guarantor of the state and the political order. That means that Civilians are not going to get to power, election or not, no elections, unless the military decided so. Um, which brings us to the recent elections, which I saw your thread on Twitter. It was really fascinating because you were basically the only person I could find anywhere who was covering the election. I mean, without your Twitter feed, I wouldn't have even heard that Mauritania was having an election. And why is an authoritarian military regime actually relying on elections anyway? So I'm. I mean, uh, Ahmed, you're asking you're asking a question that probably could take me an hour and a half to answer. Let's start with the most obvious and the easiest. Why is an authoritarian regime relying on elections? Well, there are several degrees of authoritarianism, and the system that was perfected in Mauritania is that like, and this is by Abdulaziz. This was like his main contribution. Unlike Maawiya before him, Abdulaziz really avoided perfected a system where. He doesn't arrest people, even though he did arrest some people, but it's an absolutely last resort thing. There's never any killings. Brutal force is used to a minimum. But what, what, does, what he does is, is, is that his opponents or those who stand in his way will wake up and find, like, let's say, the, the tax authority presenting them with a, an astronomical bill that will bankrupt them. People, like, people who are opposing him and this is not only individuals, this could be individuals, families, clans, or entire tribes, would find themselves completely excluded from the economic life in the country, hmm. including state jobs, including jobs in the military, including tenders and contracts from, from, from the state, which is the biggest employer in the country. He will basically ruin you. You and everyone around you is going to be bankrupted. And that has been the tactic. And they shut down newspapers and stuff like that? Well, yeah, yeah, they should, like, they should, they shut down papers, and they can even, like, they will go beat a protest in the street. Um, they will beat some, they will throw some of them in jail, and 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 this option of jailing political opponents has been used only sparsely, but those who were, were thrown in jail tend to stay there for a while, and they wouldn't torture them. Like high-profile political prisoners are not going to get tortured, and so it's a it's a unique form of authoritarianism, and that's what that's further reason why this is so interesting. So, Nasser, why was this election important? This election is important um, because, unlike the other elections, the, the future is, uh, the, of the regime is kind of unknown. Mohammed Abdul Aziz, president of Mauritania, has come up 
to his term uh, limits. He's, his second term uh, ends in June 2019, and the Constitution provides only for two terms. And these elections are very important because the opposition, which has been always tamed and always uh, the regime has always managed to, 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 to divide it, tame it, all of a sudden they feel emboldened because Aziz himself, the head of the regime, is in a, in a real tight spot. He has promised repeatedly that he is leaving power and is not changing the constitution, but people don't trust it. And what they are getting into, the reason that the, this election was dynamic, is that because th everyone involved is giving their all in order to position themselves in case he leaves or not. And the most important thing about this election is the following number. Parliament has 157 seats. And for any constitutional reform to pass, the government or by the constitution, you need two-thirds two -thirds seats of the parliament. That's what is at stake. What is at stake is not the majority. It's the supreme, the, 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 the super majority, the, uh, the total majority. So hang on. This is um, President Aziz is an authoritarian military ruler. Um, and he is subjecting himself for elections, I'm guessing, for show. Yes. You're saying that he feels that even he can't go so far as to stay in office when the Constitution explicitly forbids it, so he has to rewrite the Constitution in order to grant himself another term in office. Yes, and he's, he's repeatedly said that he, he will not, but his member, the members of his government and, and party and majority have been saying exactly the same thing, that they want a third term, they want a third term. And actually, I would quote... Uh, one of the high-level ministers said that Dustur Quran, meaning the constitution is not holy scripture; it can be changed. But generally, in an authoritarian regime, when elections happen, the results are already known beforehand. Uh, what's different here? Yeah, w what's different is is that one component of the opposition, which is the Islamist party Tawassul, like a compendium of different Islamist currents, including. Brotherhood, Salafis, and all that which is in between has been extremely disciplined and extremely strategic for the past five years. And they're, they've surged in the polls at the expense of traditional opposition parties, which were completely crushed because of the, the regime's sort of embargo against them. And the main thing that the regime managed to do was to, to break their backs economically. They don't have money. Whereas Tawassul managed to keep its game together secure its own sources of funding, and then they're surging in the polls. And from what I understood from your Twitter thread is that they're so organized that they're even managing to limit the regime's ability to commit electoral fraud. Not only them, all of the opposition. Hmm. And, uh, and because the opposition feels emboldened, because they know that Aziz is in a tight fix, as you saw, like the thread that you mentioned has been written over a period of 10 days, and it's still evolving. As the results are coming out, people have been literally involved in, in a boxing match, literally a boxing match, where they go and contest the results and fight over the results and, and try to prevent fraud in as much as possible and document it in order to... They're literally fighting for every voice and vote that is going out there. And the problem for the regime is, is that... Um, in the past, in the past elections, which the, the opposition automatically boycotted, except Tawassul. 
Because this time around, they, they, and they're saying, look, this is above party, this is above any divisions. If this guy gets, if we allow this guy to get two-thirds of parliament, we're done for. He's never going to leave. And that's what's so en energizing everybody. And, and, there, and it's created these strange bedfellows and alliances on the ground, on the mayorals, in the cities, which are all driving to one goal. Cut the route and prevent this fella from getting two-thirds uh, two of parliament. Aziz is c in a fix. He's in a corner. That's why this is unique. And, and the, so the factors are Aziz is in a corner, the opposition is emboldened, and his margin of maneuver is not as wide, and they're emboldened because for the first time, they're not demoralized. They actually fully believe and think that they can attain their objective. So you mentioned that people are literally fighting for every vote. How are they doing that and how are they trying to prevent fraud? Um, for example, in Butilimit, which is uh, um, a city 130 kilometers uh, east of Nouakchott, they surrounded the the voting bureaus. There were a couple of voting bureaus where the like sort of the the, the heads of the the bureau were refusing to let them see the voting report, which is where you mark down the results. And they wouldn't, they basically surrounded it and they, they prevent like sort of, they put a blockade on it until they saw the, the actual voting r record and compared it with what's actually in the boxes. That's one sample of, of dozens of such incidents um, across the country. And you posted that in one, in one polling station, they actually caught the ruling party's campaign boss with pre-printed ballots, right? Absolutely. So fraud is massive. And that is, again, the other interesting thing, because someone like me is, uh, uh, like is looking at the opposition and is like, what did you guys expect? What did you truly, th really think is going to happen? These guys have, have, have the state, they have the central bank, they have the military, and they have the interior ministry. What how did you get this notion in your heads that you can beat them? Well, they even uh, forget the central bank. The important thing is that the government even owns the electoral commission, the nominally independent electoral commission, right? No, I mean the electoral independent commission, as is during the national, uh, the last national dialogue, made a concession and allowed some of the opposition people to parachute their members in there. But even that doesn't really change um, uh, much in the, in the in the in the overall picture because the representatives of the uh, independent electoral commission on the local level are bribable can like sort of that's not what what would worry the regime because they can have these guys handle these guys um as 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 they see fit i think that i'm going to go like i need to explain to you the again this is a a, a static ter like this is a an insider term uh, in mauritania it's we call it the the Kubenni model. Kubenni is this town in uh, in the Hauda Sharqi, meaning that sh the southern southern eastern part of the country. And then Kubenni, in 1992, during the first elections, multi-party election, had 4,000 voters registered there, and Kubenni was dominated by a tribe. Let's call it Tribe A. Tribe A's sheikh, basically bosses, leaders. 
who who happen to be uh, part of the ruling party, and they are also government ministers and part of the administration. When the results came out, of course, the ruling party won Kubeni by seventeen thousand votes. So the margin of victory <laughs> was more than the number of registered voters. Exactly. So it became a joke. It's like, yep, they're gonna pull a Kubeni on us this time around. Hang on, didn't didn't you say that someone found um, that their their deceased grandfather had voted or something? Yeah, in the past elections, actually, the the referendum last summer for the change of uh, the the uh, the change of uh, the constitution and all these things. This is the refer- uh, the referendum last summer. Yeah, a friend uh, discovered that his own grandfather had voted. The only problem is that his grandfather had passed two years before that. That's not the kind of mistake that can be made innocently in any way. Absolutely not. Here's why. Here's how it happens. This actually what people don't realize is that modern technology, and this is very important for our listeners and the rest of the Arab world to wrap their, hand, uh, their minds around, because Mauritania really... Why should you listen to Mauritania? Mauritania is a lab of the things that could hit you, because we've been always ahead of all of you when it came to elections, democracy, and all this stuff. So... Mauritania, four or five years ago, shifted to a biometric civil registry, civil state, and they did a biometric census when uh, basically everyone in the country, every citizen was registered, plus their their fingerprint and their, their photo, and this created a national registry, and everyone has a national ID number. That is the basis of the electoral lists where you go register. Who controls this? Uh, I'm going to guess the government. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So what happens? The ruling party loyalists who have access to all of this data, no one else has access to them, can go in advance and canvas electoral districts that they know that they're going to lose. So let's say, um, for example, in in the district district of Arafat in Nouakchott, which is you know, always goes to the opposition, it goes without saying. The only variable is which opposition. So the district of Arafat, somebody will show up at their voting bureau on the day of the election and they'll be told, yeah, you're registered, of course you're registered. It's just you're registered in Zwerat. Do you know how far is Zwerat? Zwerat is about a thousand kilometers north. Innocent mistake, I'm sure. Innocent mistake, I don't know. Somebody pushed the button, I don't know. They should have pushed, pushed enter, they, they pushed tab. And that has been going a lot. And, and the lesson here is, is that, like, like in, in the Arab world, if you're going to have your own uh, transition away or go into a transition to democratic elections and things like that, one of the things that you guys need to make sure to negotiate over and discuss and clarify is the data. Who controls the data and who can access it? And you should demand total and transparent access to the data so that you don't get played. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into people assume that, you know, we just have to hold a democratic election and that's it. You know, we've succeeded. But in actual fact, the election is only the beginning. There's all kinds of tricks that can be played like, oh, the the ballot boxes from that district uh, conveniently went missing because we knew what the result was going to be there. So it's better that they did go missing. Things like that. Yeah. Th- that's precisely why I wrote I, I, I wrote this long thread 
to get uh, the point to across to my fellow Arabs, Democrats, because what I was, what I'm really trying to do is that to to nudge them and tell them, yeah, Mauritania is this little thing out totally off of your radar screen, but you better watch and learn because this is a test tube for everything that's going to be done to you. Okay, Nasser, take me through the anatomy of how an election is stolen in Mauritania. Um, the 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 phases, one to five or whatever. Okay, so the phases, the phases is like, again, before, before election day, um, the ruling party gets access to, to, to the voting registry and the biometric database. They know exactly who is registered where, and they can tweak it, um, they can tweak it to suit them. For example, let's say that they, in District A, they know that they can, w if they play fair, that the vote is going to be very close. They do an estimation. Let's say they think that they can win this district by, let's say, 300 votes. They will zoom on that district. 150 of these voters are going to be sent backing somewhere else before election day. And as this is going, they're going around and they're buying voters' ID cards, giving them, here's, here's $10, give me your, your voting card further shave uh, away voters and this happens even in you know advanced democracies this isn't a thing that happens in the tribal hinterlands of mauritania i mean even sort of yeah. even western countries yeah, you can yeah, turn yeah. up to the polls sometimes yes. and find that you're missing from the electoral roll yes yes absolutely the second thing that happens is is that during during the like the actual voting day before the the the, the ballots are closed you have these mobile mobile voting units who are revolving and being sent strategically oh uh, f like it's uh, like we like the opposition turnout is high there go try to compensate them and this is done across the country or um they would like you would stand in line and they will make sure that the process get becomes extremely slow in order to sort of control the the flow of those who are going in to vote. Oh, so try and persuade you to see how long the queue is and just go home? Exactly. Demoralize you. Mm. The fourth way uh the fourth way an election is stolen is, is that once once the uh, the ballots are closed, the vo like the voting time is up, when they start counting they would prevent the representatives of the the other parties of being present or they would even let them in but like would arrange it in a way and then as they're counting the ballots they would be contesting oh this is an invalid this is an invalid this is an invalid and this is an invalid hmm. and in this in these elections that we have right now actually the top number of votes in the country over 143 i don't remember like 143 or 243 don't quote me thousand votes were invalid. Hmm. So the joke is, is that if there was if the, uh, the invalid ballot was a party, it would be the number one party in parliament. Some of it is innocent. Some of the invalid thing absolutely is innocent. Again, don't forget, um, illiteracy is kind of high there. But that, that is something that the regime or the ruling, uh, ruling party exploits because it looks only natural, especially that these elections, the voting process was quite complicated. You had to fill these like five, five pieces of paper. One of them was almost 70 centimeters long. Wow. 
and then you have like basically then you have the 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 the, the even more insidious one which is okay you opposition party members and independent electoral commission please come in come see sit down watch okay so we counted everything okay go out have a tea and then the head of the bureau takes the voting bulletin which is the voting report fills it as he wishes and that's what goes to the interior ministry wow so you spent all of that time watching them count the ballot only for them to just submit a different document exactly and then um i found a video unfortunately i couldn't upload it on twitter where they found pre-signed voting reports where you could fill whatever you wanted wow and then there's this video which like this was on last monday people found entire voting ballots with people's names like this is the thing that they put in and it has their picture and has their etc like sort of thrown out like basically just thrown out flying and blown by the wind in Nwakshat and when they looked at them closely they were from Wadenega Wadenega is 60 some kilometers from Nwakshat so these are just being taken somewhere to be disposed of exactly wow and this has been basically happening from what i understand for 25 years you told us about you told us about the Kubani model, um, which was yes. in '92, and now you're, you're yes. saying these things are happening today in terms of pre-filled uh, ballot reports, absolutely vote stuffing, absolutely. So it's a wonder in that case that anyone even bothers to turn up and vote when they know that this is happening, and that makes it all the more inspiring when you posted that video from Butel Meat of citizens and opposition members basically laying siege to a voting bureau to prevent the physical exit of the voting report because once it's gone the damages are reversible that's incredible that they feel that kind of um, desire to have their voices heard rather than just a fatalism of oh screw it we're never going to win anyway exactly the message that the mauritanians are sending and they have internalized is no one is going to come help us France, the United States, the European Union, the African Union, all the unions you, you have on the planet, the United Nations, uh, they will all issue statements saying that, oh, Mauritania's elections were peaceful and satisfactory. Which is pretty damning of all of those international organizations, given that video evidence exists of um, a lot of this stuff. That, that is what is happening with the Mauritanians. They know that there's no help from outside. You cannot count on the world to save you from basically having your vote vote and elections stolen. And this is not like they are not being cynical about it. They're simply looking at their past 15 years of experience. And, and, and that's why they're fighting so hard. And that's why they're like you have people, you have these uh, youngsters who are on, on Facebook and WhatsApp distributing, documenting everything that goes on video film photo audio recording and and that's the other thing that hit the regime they didn't quite they they they, they were like oh this arab arab uprising thing is over blah 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 the internet we, we've got all of this under control but like there was a bit of a perfect like several elements that lined up that put them in this uncomfortable position of course if you look at the results right now on paper the ruling party has already a majority in parliament, but that's not what is really at stake. We will know whether these elections really, really, really 
were this turning point or not. If the ruling party gets two-thirds, game over. If they don't, nothing is lost. Like what I find fascinating about the entire thing is, is that Mauritanians are really taking the word, the term democracy, literally. Rule of the people. And young people are organizing effectively outside of political money, tribes, and ethnic politics. Particularly in the big cities and um, also the uh, parts of the interior. But like the, 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 the cataclysmic change that happened in this election, and um, I didn't quite unpack it, is that during the national dialogue as of two years ago, the regime agreed to introduce proportional, the proportional system into uh, some cities in the interior as a concession. And that was part of their undoing. Look, the electoral system in Mauritania since 1992, and, and with the exception of the brief democratic apostrophe between 2000, like parenthesis between 2005 and 2007, was always designed so that the opposition, no matter what they do, they will never get more than 35%. And, um, and, 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 and the system was designed the following way. You introduced a proportional system in uh, proportional votes in, in the big cities because these are opposition stronghold and then you create these satellite tiny parties and things uh, movements or in so-called independent lists so that they siphon votes away from the opposition and that way the ruling party will always have seats oh they try and split so the vote. it was designed yes so to undermine to undermine the domination of the of the opposition in the big cities Whereas the regime strongholds, electoral strongholds, have always been the interior. And, and, and the, regime, the regime always dominated the interior th through the tribal dynamics. Because, for example, if you take for, um, the capital of, uh, of La Saba, Kifa. Kifa has two tribes. Like, they are the biggest tribes. El Sidi Mahmoud and Laglal. And they will be like, okay, El Sidi Mahmoud, you guys get the MP position. You, Laglal, get the, uh, let's say, the regional council, or the senate, when it, before it was cancelled. And you, third tribe, you get mayor. What does this dynamic do? This dynamic basically secures and locks in entire tribes behind uh, for the regime. So when you introduce the proportionate system, what you really, what you really did is that you undermined that, that, that gridlock. You ensured that there would be winners and losers. Y that there will be independents who can run which is exactly what happened. Um, there's this guy who was actually a, ruling, um, a member of the ruling party. When the nominations came out, they didn't nominate him for that city, which is a, a strong electoral bastion, and it is his bastion. So what did, he, what did he do? He went and ran independent and won it hands down. And now he's opposition. So you have like the, like each each city and each district and each uh, wilaya has its own boss like on tribal basis. That's the tribal tapestry e equilibrium that has always to be kept. So by introducing the proportionate, what happens is that the regime opened the door so that competitors can 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 run and siphon away votes from the ruling party. Even ruling party loyalists are no longer under the mercy of the regime. Now the, the regime has to come back them.
So was the introduction of the proportionate system um, just an accident or was it a masterstroke by the opposition who insisted on this um, with the long-term goal in mind during the dialogue? So <laughs> the real opposition yeah. was not even at the dialogue. And this concession was made by Aziz, by the regime, to the so-called dialogue opposition, which is really, let's say, call it like a diet opposition. They're really, uh, um, they're really with Aziz, but they are playing the role of an opposition. So he created a puppet um, opposition to have a dialogue with them to legitimize himself. And the puppet opposition, exactly. he, he was so incompetent that the puppet opposition managed to extract a concession from him, which has ultimately undermined his bid for a third term. And, 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 and the reason that they actually rebelled on him is twofold. The first one is that they saw how, like, uh, one of the things that were decided in the national dialogue was canceling the Senate. Mauritania used to have uh, a bicameral parliament. Now we're left only with one chamber, which is the House of Representatives. Why was that? Because he is trying to reduce the hurdles. Uh, because he needed, like, for a constitutional thing to pass, two-thirds of the MPs and two-thirds of the Senate. Ah, so he just got rid of the Senate. <laughs> He got rid of the first one. And, and and oh my God, this is the, one of the most delicious ironies in the entire thing. And so, like, his own loyalists saw how he dumped the senators who were loyalists to him. And they basically woke up one day and were told, okay, you're out of a job. Bye-bye. Good luck. Maybe we'll get you something in this regional council thing that we're creating instead. Which basically sent them the message is that, oh, you're going to have to go slug it out again, start from scratch, and maybe, maybe you might get elected or you, we might nominate you or we might not nominate you. And so that left a very bitter taste in the mouth of, the, uh, of even his own loyalists that, that basically realized that this guy has no loyalty to his own people. He's using them like, the, uh, like disposable things. And that left a bitter taste, uh, broke sort of the confidence. And the second thing, as the time evolved and everyone realized that Aziz was truly, was no longer his old self, you know, the clear, determined, dashing, forward, like stubborn guy. He was actually kind of stuttering his behavior around, uh, uh, around whether, whether and how he's going to leave. They realized that the guy is actually in effects. And they were like, ha-ha, now we can extract stuff from him. So there is a, like sort of, there was a loosening in, in the system. So a little bit of a perestroika gone wrong. There was a loosening in the system, and it was like the whole point of the proportionate was to basically assure the puppet opposition is like, hey, if you go with me, you're going to get elected. I'll make sure of it. That was the original intention. But because of his own mis political miscalculations, it backfired and ended up even... Like the, like the real story here is that it gave, it gave the, the, the real opposition a, a realistic chance at competing, hence all of these big cities that no one thought like this is possible. It's like, oh my God, there's a second round in Erkiz for, for the regional council and for the, for, for, the, uh, for the MP seats. That's basically the equivalent of this, let's say, in Syria. If they, if they had a democracy, this is like uh, the, the candidate presented by the regime having to slug it out um, for a second round, a runoff in Al-Qardaha. Wow. That's the equivalent. Um, so that's, if anyone that misses the reference, that's the birthplace of Assad. Unheard of. And it's not only at Kiz, there are other places like that. 
And the fascinating, fascinating thing is that there's this feeling or an ambiance of a end of rain. That's what is really going on. Because Aziz's cardinal mistake, in my opinion, is that if he is indeed leaving, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for the sake of the country. His cardinal mistake is that he did not announce what th that transition looks like and who picking and anointing either a successor to himself or coming out clearly and saying, well, I'm not appointing any successor, you guys figure it out. Now, I mean, again, uh, according to people, there is this gentleman, and it's important for, I mean, for you, because you have become, you've become a, a Mauritanian watcher. There's this guy called Sheikh Ulbaiya, who is uh, a former army colonel, um, who's a fascinating star in his own right. He's now running um, for MP in Zwerat. And Zwerat is the, as you know, Mauritania's GDP, 30% of Mauritania's GDP comes from... Uh, from uh, mining. And Zwerat is the capital of, like the mining capital of Mauritania. And, and Sheikh Ulbaiya, who is a billionaire in his own right, Sheikh Ulbaiya fi is finding himself having to compete for uh, the seat that everyone six months ago thought that he had guaranteed and locked in. And Sheikh Ulbaiya is important because many people felt at some point that he may have been Aziz's anointed successor all along, but it has not been announced. And so, like, all of these, ab the above factors are creating a sense where the opposition are like, look, we have to fight. We need to draw a line in the sand, and we will not let this pass. Because the, the, wor the best case scenario, we might actually block the two-thirds. The, the worst case scenario, if, if, if the fraud comes by and this guy ends up changing, changing the constitution... He may trigger a coup d'etat or popular revolution or both. So the stakes are extremely high. That's why these elections are so fascinating. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was um, this, these pictures of lone voting bureaus in the middle of the desert and people basically escorting these ballot boxes through the mud, guarding them by arms, um, wading through lakes with them crossing deserts to get these ballot boxes back um it was amazing and you don't really ever realize how much of a a struggle democracy is that's why i put that picture in particular i was moved when i saw it because you know as an american citizen living in the united states and i'm extremely privileged and lucky to have that honor uh, when i'm looking across the western world and you can see that democracy is re on the on, on the retreat what like a place like that like who would have thought that it, people in places like Mauritania that have never known in their lives a fully functioning democracy will be so determined to go all the way with this process, even though they, they know that it's rigged and they, they know that they're fighting against the system and that the deck of cards are stacked against them and that they, like no one is going to help them or save them from this, yet they're pushing all the way through. And all more the reason to, to watch this, to support them, and to back them and not to get bogged down in the silly binaries of, uh, of trying to, to compare Mauritania to Egypt or to these other places or to get too fixated on the Islamist, on the Islamist uh, side of things. And it's no secret. Ahmed, you know me and anyone who needs my th uh, my, uh, reads my th uh, thread line 
I don't need any stamp approval from anyone. It's quite known, never made secret of the fact that I I'm not an, a fan of Islamist ideology, and I don't think that Islamists are are fully democratic. But nonetheless, I think that I it's a cardinal mistake to try to repeat the CC experience in a place like Mauritania um, in order in order to uh, to bar the road. Let the let the let people run. Let people vote, and whatever the ballot box comes out with just as they came in they can be voted out and um at the end of the day i think that uh, the by extension the islamists need to learn to tolerate also those who disagree with them fundamentally because that's ultimately the 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 what is really at stake here is that how do we learn to to cohabitate and, and share a country instead of coming with this mentality of all um zero sum games and ultimately, that's, I mean, uh, isn't that what the military rule is doing to begin with? Isn't that what we're trying to get rid of? And I personally am not as worried. I think that uh, Mauritania's Islamists are not Egyptian Islamists. I still mark my t fundamental ideological disagreement with them. But I also think that um, um, at the same time that uh, uh, the learning lesson here is that the Islamists managed to achieve these, uh, these results because they're extremely well-funded, they're extremely well-organized, and they have been working for the past five years, whereas the opposition, the traditional opposition, um, had such a dismal results because they, the only reason they agreed to participate in these elections uh, was because of an obscure law, Mauritanian law, that says that any party that does not participate in two successive elections or achieves an electoral score of less than two percent, I believe, their license that their their license gets basically revoked. So the opposition came into all this completely unprepared. It would be grossly unfair to the entire country of Mauritania to write off its elections because um, an Islamist opposition has done really well because. Ultimately, um, that's transient, whereas this is an election that will possibly define the entire future of the political system of the country. Absolutely. So if you, dig, if you again, dig into res the, the results, is that with all the fraud that went on, etc., what is the big deal really about the, the, the Islamist Mauritania? They got 15 MPs, so we're talking of uh, 147 seats. And so, like, this notion that there's this this oh my god the muslim brotherhood took over mauritania both celebratory or panic pangs both of these both of these views are are patently and factually false what i wanted to say in conclusion is is that um this game is far from over we're barely through um if i were to use american football uh, analogies this we're barely through the first quarter we have three quarters to go. The, the second quarter will be the second round of the elections. The third quarter will be how Aziz is going to organize his exit or not. And the fourth quarter will be the president, the upcoming presidential elections in, in, in June 19, June 2019. So we're barely at the beginning of this thing. And a lot more to come and a lot more to observe. And one thing that I've learned as a Mauritania insider, Mauritanian politics are extremely treacherous. People are extremely volatile. And I wouldn't take anything for granted at this point. And I say this as someone who has personally under the belt three coup d'etats, one transition, and a bunch of other <laughs> another incidents, let's call them that way.
ومن على قبر النزار من البعد سلام سلام على قبر يزار من البعد سلام على روضة We recorded this episode after the first round of the elections and I'm adding these notes a week later as the second round's votes are being counted. The opposition have denounced fraud in Zuarat, Rosso, Atar and the capital Nouakchott, citing campaigns by the ruling party to buy votes, shift voters away from voting centers and make targeted arrests in Zuarat. The regime's intense anti-Islamist campaign seems to have borne fruit as the international community remained silent regarding the egregious fraud. After a decade of intense effort, the regime of General Mohammed Wild Abdulaziz has finally gotten itself a tame opposition to legitimize its fraudulent elections and a bogeyman opposition with which to scare the West into backing it. The real question now in Mauritania is, will the growing culture of citizenship and civic engagement succeed in protecting modest democratic gains, or will Aziz stay in power and thus score another triumph for authoritarianism in the Arab world. Please share your thoughts on this episode by tweeting at us. Our handles are in the description, or tweeting on hashtag ArabTyrantManual. Please also subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using and share the podcast, or recommend it to a friend. It really helps. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, a project of Kawakibi Foundation. How